Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Cecilia Mitwash. And we are your hosts. Today on the Dermatology Podcast, we will find out what we learned about beard alopecia and alopecia areata during the COVID pandemic. As it turns out, it was a very interesting period to study these conditions. We don't know exactly how many of them will develop to a normal alopecia areata effect in the scalp, but we do now know that it's more frequent than we thought before. That was Ramon Grimald, who has been researching these conditions. We'll ask him to share what he knows in a moment, but first... Face-to-face courses are back. Specialists, residents, and now nurses all have the possibility to attend EADV-organized courses. We're looking forward to meeting you in some of the most beautiful cities in Europe. To see what's coming up next, go to EADV.org and check under Face-to-Face Education. And... If you're not an EADV member, have you thought about becoming one? Benefit from access to on-demand webcasts, online courses, 17 medical journals, including EADV's esteemed JADV, over 20 textbooks, reduced fees for congresses and symposia, and much, much more. Just go to EADV.org under membership for more information. And now... Ramon Grimot is Doctor of Medicine and fully accredited professor with a specialization in dermatology. He's currently serving as associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the Universitat Internacional de Catalunya. He's given over 120 presentations at international congresses, over 180 courses and seminars, 11 books, and 42 book chapters. And we're very happy to have him with us today. Professor Grimault, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's jump right into alopecia areata and its current treatment landscape. What do we know about beard alopecia areata? and the risk of progression to scalp alopecia areata? Well, that's a very interesting question. And in fact, uh, we just published one big paper on beard alopecia areata. And we realized that many patients, as they shave, they are not so concerned about alopecia areata on the beard because it's so easy to hide it. Mm -hmm. So now with the pandemic, many patients stop shaving themselves. So we've seen more cases of alopecia areata than before because people tend to not shave so much. So it's been a nice thing to check how the incidence of this disease that many people did not go to the dermatologist because they did not need to show it and now they are coming to us. We don't know exactly how many of them will develop to a normal alopecia areata effect in the scalp, but we do now know that it's more frequent than we thought before. That's really interesting. I think during the lockdown, many of us with beards uh, let them grow a little bit longer than usual. Yeah, we, we all did, but so many people did. It's, uh, it's quite common. According to your paper on alopecia areata totalis and universalis, a multicenter review of 132 patients in Spain, what are the main therapeutic challenges of treating these conditions? Well, we have to admit that this is very frustrating and we still do not have something that really cures the disease. So in this review paper, we just checked all the available options and we put in a kind of balance to see how harm 
we can do to someone to get a little bit benefit on his disease. But there's no treatment right now that without any harming helps the patients. So I think our job as dermatologists is try to find just the right amount of treatment that allows the patient to feel comfortable with their lives. But we are not curing alopecia areata, so we should be very careful not to harm our patients affected by it. Fantastic. Now, you'll see in this interview, we're going to jump around through a lot of your research. Now we'll switch gears. What key factors might influence frontal fibrosing alopecia severity? It's also a very difficult question. Ah, <laughs> you are checking uh, the, the rough ones. In fact, we still do not know at all what is the cause of frontal fibrosing alopecia. So we see many patients that there are so many theories about that. At the beginning, we thought it must be hormonal because most of the patients were females and postmenopausic. So the first denomination of the disease was postmenopausal frontal fibrosing alopecia. Now we know that some younger women without menopause are also developing and we also have some males with frontal fibrosis so the theory this is hormonal is not valid anymore mm. so the australians came out uh, mostly Rod sinclair about this theory about sun blockers how the amount of moisturizer of sun blockers or even other type of creams might influence on the onset of this type of disease and now we know that many patients that have never used this type of products might also develop the disease. So we still really do not know what is causing the disease. It might be uh, some of different uh, concepts and mostly a genetic predisposition because we see more and more papers on different family members suffering from the disease. So I would say that we do not have something to ask our patient, stop doing that and you'll be safer. So there's still a lot of research to do and we hope that in the next future we'll be able to, to better understand what's causing the disease and then to better tell our patients what to do in order to avoid progression of the disease. So what does the current hair loss treatment landscape look like, uh, including some of the novel ones? What do we have now? Wow, uh, we can discuss about that for a couple of hours. I think that uh, if we think of hair loss uh, on the most common cause, which is androgenetic alopecia, we are in front of a situation that uh, unfortunately it's very stable. Five years ago everyone was excited about cloning hair mm -hmm. and hair biogenetics engineering in order that we'll be able to get some hairs plucked out of the skull, go to the lab and multiply the cells and then inject the cells on the scalp in order to get some hair growth. I think we'll have to wait for that. We have also, on the other hand, these uh, 3D printers of hair that looks very promising, but it will not be immediate to, to find it. All the research on PRP, the platelet-rich factors, it's not showing so much good results as we thought. I've also seen so many papers on laser therapy, on low-light therapy, and the results are a little bit promising, but most of the research papers are not well performed enough to tell that this, this is really working. 
and regarding hormonal therapy I think this is probably the future and if we get a topical finasteride to be applied with no absorption, with no secondary effects, we can increase the dose and if we can get nanoparticles that go directly from the skin to the hair bulb without entering the body, probably this might be a good future for the treatment of androgenetical epithelium, but we'll have to wait to get that. So these are pretty new technologies, especially when we get into the nano stuff. Was this something we were thinking about 20 years ago, or are we really cutting edge now? Well, I think here it's getting very popular, and maybe in the last 5-10 years the, the hair research has really changed a lot. And uh, also I can see it in the general assemblies of dermatology, before many dermatologists did not care at all about hair. Mm -hmm. And now the local societies of hair research in every country are getting more and more crowded by dermatologists interested in hair. And I think maybe 20 years ago we just had minoxidil, and now we have so many options and rutasteride for female androgenetic alopecia it's showing also good results if injected slowly with mesotherapy on the scalp there are small things moving and maybe when we and also the hair transplant before they just did this striper that was very aggressive and now this small puncture system is showing good results and you don't need these big departments to perform it. A normal dermatology can do it in a normal office with just someone helping them. And before you need five, six people working at the right. same time. Eh? So I think hair transplant will be also a change in the future. But we need something to keep the hair here because if we move here from here to here and then we lose all the rest mm -hmm. in some years, we'll have a problem again. Right. So. Should we really be looking towards systemic treatments then? I think so. But systemic treatments really effective without any risk. Mm -hmm. This is the, the difficult thing on, on dermatology in general. Yeah? Absolutely. What are the most crucial recommendations for clinical trials of frontal fibrosing alopecia based on the consensus recommendations from the International FFA Cooperative Group? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I think that one of the big problems we have right now on hair research adds is the difficulty on really assessing improvement when trying to perform a clinical trial. Here it's not stable and the population goes fluctuating on the amount of hair shedding on the amount of hair growing, even on the number of hairs in antigen. So when we try to see if something is changing, a baseline that we do not know how is the baseline, it's very difficult to tell if it's the doctor, or it's a clinical trial, or it's the evolution of the disease, or we are just facing normality. When we were animals, we used to have a shed that was related to climate. So it was very seasonal, very easy to understand. But as we are not animals anymore in the sense that we use uh, temperature regulators and we have heaters and so on, we are not so seasonal regulated. So hair mouth, it's changing in a crazy way, difficult to understand. So some people entering a clinical trial 
might be in the beginning of a mild period. Mm -hmm. So you think the clinical trial is not working because the patient is not on a stable base. And on the opposite, if I try to see the efficacy of iron uh, on, on a hair problem and the patient is at the end of a mounting system, it might look that he's improving a lot. And on the other hand, if you try to develop a computer assist system to count hairs, there's a new technology that it's hair-to-hair -hair count, but it's still developing. It's not useful for every day. So, uh, on that case, you go to the exact same point and the computer detects the same hair and they can really assess if there are more hair there than they were six months ago. But um, this is research, we cannot use it every day, and if we try to do this every day, we have to use tattoos on the scalp, and you get to the same point because you get a tattoo, but even that, if the trichoscan is working well, but even with that, it's very difficult to be consistent on the quantity of the improvement. So the big difficulty right now it's to try to find a system that we all believe it works to assess if it's improving or if it's not improving. And patients tend to see them in the mirror and tend to calculate if they see hairs when they brush or when they get the shower. And most of the feeling of the patient is not really related to the efficacy of our treatment. So trying to put on a clinical trial well designed, it's so hard because it's very difficult to, to have a system to evaluate the efficacy of a treatment. Let's switch gears a bit. Uh, let's talk about COVID-19. Could you tell us a little bit about your observations concerning cutaneous manifestation of COVID-19 in children? Yeah. We have seen, uh, and in fact, the Italian colleagues were the first ones to report that. And Vincenzo Piccolo is from Naples. He's a very good researcher and he's a very good, uh, sharp observational man that uh, sometimes just seeing a patient, he can get an idea of writing the paper. The Italians are a little bit like that. This is very good of them because they've got these ideas that go directly to them. And with Vincenzo Piccolo, we have seen so many ideas on uh, how COVID-19 might influence on the skin. And the first uh, cases of uh, chilled pain-like lesions on summertime were reported. And it was very surprising because many of these cases did not have a positive PCR or positive antigen test for COVID. So it was in the same exact period. So it could not be two different diseases but they were negative. So how can we understand that? And in fact, still now we have contradictory research in that sense. We thought at the beginning there's another virus that we are not testing that's happening at the same time of COVID because maybe the capacity of the body of fighting against the virus is getting low because of the COVID and this new virus is striking in and it's provoking this. It was a crazy idea and now we have more complex tests on trying to check 
viral, viral particles on the biopsy of these fingers, and some research has shown that in some of them they can find it, but in others it's still negative. So it's still uh, an unknown answer. We still don't know why this small vasculitis in this patient, and it Usually, in, it's in the less severe cases, which is still more difficult to understand why this so crazy-looking uh, skin problem is affecting the less severe cases. Uh, it could be related in more lung involvement and then more vasculitis-like, but it's not. So this is um, very complicated. And we have seen other things like Pteridiasis rosea-like eruptions and other virus-like eruptions like um, Epizoster and so on. I think this is all related to the immune fluctuations of the virus. But I think it's, um, it's good and it's interesting and it might help pediatricians and other colleagues to make proper diagnosis of uh, COVID manifestations here. Now, you published an interesting article in the JEADV entitled Late Onset Pustular Skin Eruption in a Healthy Neonate Born from COVID-Positive Mother. A coincidence or a new skin sign of the infection? What are the potential implications of this study on COVID babies? Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, now we are, we are seeing that many of the pregnant women that did not receive the vaccination are now delivering the babies. And so we are all learning from COVID. Everything is new. So the multinational collaboration, it's really helping because we have not so much experience. So we haven't seen so many babies being born from infected mothers because most of them have tried to avoid relation, obviously, with others, and most of them avoid or escape vaccination because we were not safe enough to feel free to say, oh, don't worry, you can get vaccinated. And if, and if we said so, many of the mothers didn't accept it, so we're now facing reality. And I think in the next months we'll have so many mild manifestations of COVID infection in uterus. And this one was of the one of the first reports that we still don't know if it's a real manifestation of that or it was just a coincidence. So it's good on publishing papers or in international collaboration to report what we believe it might be a sign because if you report one and if another doctor sees the same one, the second one will go and give some support to this idea. So the second, the third and the fourth will confirm that is really related to your hypothesis. So sometimes and the editors of the GAID on that sense they are very generous to allow uh, researchers to publish hypotheses or ideas because this will help to corroborate or say no this is not really related to that so mm -hmm. this is one of these papers that we are just pointing to one direction and we would love that we get an answer from other colleagues also so let's connect the dots now now let's talk about hair loss in covid-19 patients what do we know about the relationship between COVID-19 infection and hair loss? Yeah, um, we have seen so many, mostly women, adult women with long hair, that they suffer of a condition that we call the telogen effluvium, which is a rapid uh, onset of a hair mouth, a hair loss. 
and this is sometimes very uh, frightening to the patient looking at it and in most cases not a severe problem because uh, again as we were saying before hair loss and alopecia is not the same so people tend to think that if they are losing hair it is might uh, create of a permanent problem but we change our hair so after an infection or after a trauma or after a surgery you may develop a telogen effluvium so you may lose some hair transiently and then the hair will grow back again and we have seen so many patients that after suffering from COVID-19 they are melting hair, they are changing hair, they are uh, on a transient period of uh, changing the, the hair, the scalp, the scalp on the hair and this um, was a study with many dermatologists and we published so many cases but uh, it's nothing to be worried about because in most two occasions the hair will grow back again. Professor Grimault, do you think there might be a potential risk of COVID-19 vaccine-induced hair loss? Well, it is, this is very interesting and in fact um, we have uh, published also with Vincenzo Piccoli, Piccolo some cases uh, of um, hair, um, cutaneous manifestations of COVID-19 after vaccination. So uh, if the vaccine is really working, it's also causing some of the skin symptoms. So this is it's interesting. I, I cannot answer that properly, but I would say that yes, we might be able to see some mild cases of uh, induced telogen effluvium after vaccination if the new vaccines are working on the way we believe they are. So I would say yes in mild forms and transient forms of telogen effluvium. And again, this would be a temporary condition. Yes, totally temporary. And there's no need of treatment of telogen effluvium. And this is also interesting. If a patient suffering from telogen effluvium goes to see a doctor, and receives treatment and in three months she's better, she might think that the treatment received is causing this improvement. But if she's not receiving the treatment, if she waits three months, she'll get better the same. So we as a scientist, we as researchers, we as ethical doctors helping people should be very careful when prescribing placebo to our patients. Because it, this is the same when we, you got a scar. If you get a, a C-section or you get your thyroid out, when you go home, you see the awful scar. It's red, it's big. And if you apply something to this scar for six months and it looks better, you might think is that what you apply that makes it look better. But what would be the aspect of the scar six months after surgery if you didn't apply anything? Well, you don't know. And if you spend a lot of oil of a, a lot of money on oil of muscat rose or whatever, it's a palmetto or, or, or there's so many treatments available for that. Not palmetto, sorry, this is for hair loss. I'm also influenced of hair loss. Um, you might think that this is changing the aspect of your scar, but in most cases the scar is evolving 
naturally to a better aspect. And intelligently fluvium, the situation is the same. If you have a dog at home and in the spring the sofa it's plenty of hair, and if you give her some supplement in September, there's not so much hair in the sofa. But it's the three months or it's the supplement. Well, try it next year and you'll see that in September the hair is not losing as many hair as in June. And without the supplement, the evolution is the same. So in many patients with telogen effluvium, without any treatment, they will get better. And if they are taking a treatment, they might believe it's the treatment. But we are ethical doctors and we should know that telling the truth to the patient sometimes is helping them better. And I have to admit that many doctors don't know exactly what will be the natural evolution. So they are not trying to lie to their patients, but probably are trying to help them in not a very scientific way. Correlation doesn't imply causation. Exactly, exactly. Coincidence on time does not mean that this is causing the problem. Yeah. Professor Grimault, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. It has been my pleasure to be with you, and I like the questions you choose. Thank you very much. So what did you think, Sejo? Well, the beard alopecia doesn't affect me much, but the results and really what's left to further research, it's quite interesting. It is, and I hope we can check back in with Professor Grimald in the future to find out what else he's discovered after he's published more research, hopefully in the JEADV. That's a good point, and just so our listeners know, all of the research discussed today can be found in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venerology. Though you can find free access and open access articles, EADV members benefit greatly by having access to all articles and content. Links to the articles can be found in the summary to today's podcast. That's right. As always, we will have links to the articles in the episode summary. We would like to thank Professor Grimault for speaking with us today, and we would like to thank all of you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts to make sure you get the newest episodes delivered right to you. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. Until the next episode... Take care of your skin.